people who are already in the food and CPG space, get out of your office and get into stores. And and I'm not just talking about supermarkets. I'm talking about the grocery outlets of the world, the Aldis of the world, the bodegas of the world. Uh, I mean, just everybody who sells food, the food halls, the restaurants. You know, really go up to consumers. And this is something that my dad taught me early on, that I do to this day. Um, I see the supermarket as as my laboratory. Uh, I can walk up to consumers. I can talk to them. Um, mostly pre-pandemic. Now, not a lot of people want to talk um, and say, you know, why did you buy that? And and just be really curious about why people are putting certain products in their shopping carts. This is C to C, where we cover innovation in the food and CPG business from conception to consumption. Welcome to this month's edition of the podcast, everybody. Great guest today, Phil Lempert, who many of you know. He's a, a pervasive figure in the CPG food retail space, and he is CEO of Supermarket Guru and Retail Dietitians Business Alliance, and he's also the host of a great show. I hope you've had a chance to sample it. It's called The Lempert Report Live. Phil, welcome to C2C. Thank you so much, Gary. It's a pleasure. So let's jump into it. Phil, you know, I know a lot of our listeners probably know you or know of you, but they probably don't know much about your personal background and journey. Can you, you know, you've been in the CPG and retail space a long time. Uh, can you can you tell people what your personal journey was and how you got here? I got here by birth. Uh, my grandfather was a dairy farmer in Belleville, New Jersey. My father was a food manufacturer. And I graduated from school with a different look. What I wanted to do is I wanted to help consumers, retailers, and CPG companies really understand each other better. So what happened is out of school, I started working for my dad, walking up and down the meat markets in the New York metropolitan area, trying to sell ham and cheese um, and to supermarkets as well. Then evolved a, frankly, a advertising agency that specialized in food products. And the reason for that is those days, um, I really had a strong interest in package design. So I went back for my graduate studies at Pratt um, to study package design because all the food companies were basically um, using the same photography on their products as their competitors were. And the reason was that the packaging companies would give them the artwork for nothing uh, just to get their paper board or their can or their label business. Um, so as a result, I saw that as an opportunity and built an award-winning you know, ad agency that specialized in supermarkets and in CPG brands. Great pathway. And uh, I did not know that's how it used to work in the packaging industry. So it's interesting. Uh, now, of course, packaging is, is so critical. Um, so You've seen a lot of things in your career, Phil. So uh, lots have changed over time in CPG and retail. If you had to identify some of the biggest sort of changes and meta trends, you know, what would they be in your experience? 
Well, I think the biggest change has been the cooperation between retailers and brands. Beforehand, a brand would go to a retailer with a promotional allowance, with a product, with a promotion, and you know, beg them to put it on the shelves. Now we're seeing a lot more of a holistic approach where the brand is really sharing information about consumers, sharing information about their sourcing of ingredients, what their nutritional information are, what their consumer surveys are. And I think it's this collaboration, um, and this goes back pre-pandemic, and I'll get to that point in a second, uh, we're seeing that much more than ever before. Then the pandemic hits and, you know, voila, um, the retailer and the brand are struggling. They're trying to figure out how to work together, how to satisfy the needs of the consumer. And if anything, I think it's brought both parties together closer than ever before. And I think that's so important and that's great. And now retailers are really asking hard questions of brands and the brand managers are not just there you know, for 18 months, hoping that they don't screw up and they can, you know, get promoted to the next level. Uh, but they're really looking for innovation. They're really looking to meet consumer needs, consumer trends, and, you know, being able to satisfy the needs of the retailer with a lot more than just price and promotion. Love it. That sounds like a great trend, collaboration versus, you know, more of an adversarial type relationship. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, very good stuff. Um, And so this podcast, Phil, is all about innovation. And so, you know, this is a great segue to, you know, let's let's pivot now. Let's start talking about innovation and, you know, how maybe it's different today than it used to be. Maybe let's step back first and ask, in, in your view, what are the what are the mindsets or or talents of top innovators that you've worked with, either on the retail or the brand owner, or you know, even on the uh, on the co-packer side. I think that the biggest trend that we've seen has been where, whether it's a brand or whether it's a retailer, when they're going outside their comfort zone, where retailers, for example, are hiring people away from Amazon or Microsoft or Oracle, uh, where brands are doing the same thing. I mean, the old model at retail was real simple. You start out as a bagger and you become a CEO after 40 years um, and you're very <laughs> insulated in this world. And now with the retailers, especially since the pandemic, have discovered is we need other insights. We need to do what Silicon Valley is known for, which is life hacking really looking at retail, looking at manufacturing in a very different way. I mean, the reason that we're seeing price increases, that we're seeing product shortages, um, that we're seeing all the problems really come down to three things. Number one is climate change. Number two is the labor shortage. And number three is transportation. So what retailers and brands have to do is focus on those three things. So if I'm a meat packer, and I'm used to uh, building factories that are, you know, a million square foot and don't, don't take into consideration social distancing and they're just built for efficiency. I've got a real problem today because I can only run that plant at about 40, 50 percent capacity. So what they've got to do is they've got to bring in other experts from other fields and say, OK, why don't we start building small hundred thousand square foot 
factories and dotting them throughout the country so we're less reliant on transportation so that we can build them with more robotics that we can not have to worry about social distancing so we don't have to worry about food safety we really need to be thinking with a 21st century mentality uh, versus the 20th century mentality um, and being able to reimagine whether it's the store, whether it's factories, whether it's transportation. And part of it, sure, is Elon Musk and you know driverless uh, trucks and so on. But that's not the only answer. Um, there's a lot of other answers that we need to be seeking. So I think that the biggest innovation has been in talking to the CEOs of supermarkets where they've said some of the best talent they've hired has never been in the food business before. And they look at food altogether different. That's a great tip. And I hope uh, some of our listeners pick up on that tip to, uh, you know, get out of your comfort zone, go outside of, you know, your normal vectors for hiring. And uh, I, I just had to chuckle, Phil, I got to tell you, uh, uh, my first uh, job at, when I was 16 years old was bagging in a grocery store. And 40 years later, <laughs> I was a CEO. So <laughs> right, right. I, 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 you know, if you're young, I say to everybody, start bagging in a grocery store. Exactly. Um, and keep in mind, just just to not not leave that bagging experience for a second, uh, the bagger is one of the most important people in the supermarket. That's the last touch point that a consumer has on that shopping experience. So keep in mind, and again, pre-pandemic, you know, I'm waiting online for 10 minutes with five people in front of me at a supermarket checkout. I then get there, the cashier is scanning all those products, I'm watching that monitor, and the prices are just going up and up and up, and all of a sudden I look around, and you know they want $150 from me. And I look down and I say, oh my God, that's all I got for $150? If you've got a good bagger, if you've got Gary the bagger there with a smile on his face and saying, thank you so much, can I help you bring your groceries to the car? It changes that entire experience. So that's one of the reasons that being a bagger, you know, really has equipped people uh, for these top level positions. <laughs> You're right. And don't put the chips or the fresh tomatoes on the bottom of the bag. Please. Exactly. <laughs> so so um, so I know we're going to circle back to some of these topics, but let's let's now. Now, uh, move to innovation uh, in terms of store brands and private label. Um, you know, we've seen for years uh, the increase in the percentages of store brands. So um, I assume that trend is going to continue. But, you know, what are you seeing out there, Phil? What are you seeing uh, regarding innovation vis-a-vis -vis store brands and private label? Well, um, I'm seeing a lot of innovation, but we have to take a step back and understand that it's not something new. Uh, in fact, A&P, um, obviously not on the scene anymore, really started uh, with master choice. Um, this goes back probably about 35 years ago, creating a private label, a store brand that was superior to the national brands. They were the first ones. Then we saw Dave Nichols at Loblaws come out with President's Choice, which hit the ground running not only for Loblaws, but then licensed it to a lot of US supermarkets. So the trend has been there for about 30, 35 years. 
What hasn't been there is the consumer acceptance and the retailer acceptance. The retailer said, yeah, you know, that's an interesting niche, but, you know, it's a lot easier for us just to knock off, you know, the name brand and, and come under, you know, 10 or 15% in price. Um, that all changed with Aldi. Aldi and Trader Joe's uh, both really opened up the eyes to a lot of retailers who said, hey, I can have my own brand with my own identity. I could have superior products. I can have different products than the name brand, and I can do really well. And if we look at what Safeway did uh, with O Organics um, and Kroger with their organic line and ShopRite with their organic line, uh, we're, we're seeing much more innovation in private label than we are in a lot of major brands. Uh, the major brands are old fuddy-duddies. Uh, they just want to come up with another flavor or another variety or another SKU of their best-selling product. Retailers are much more today willing to take a chance to get out there uh, to make sure that they're not just copying somebody else's recipe, but they're using more innovative uh, recipes, that they're using much more, you know, uh, much more intelligent sourcing. If you look at what Spartan Nash has done, and they only have a limited amount of, of uh, store brands with their, um, I'm trying to remember what it's called, but it's a combination of ethnic and destination. Their coffee that comes from New Orleans is one of the best coffees ever. And mm. and this is a store brand. So we're really seeing these retailers pushing. But a lot of it has to do with where the ingredients come from and telling the story of that product. It's not just about price anymore. It sound, yeah, it sounds like they've, they've gone multiple steps with uh, some of these store brands. First, you know, hey, you can get really good quality store brands. It's no longer just the cheap alternative. And I, I guess that trend happened many, many years mm -hmm. ago. But now, to your point, even premium ingredients. Um, who do you see, Phil, who do you see as some of the leading innovators today in, in, this, uh, in this sector? Well, certainly Aldi and Trader Joe's. Um, I think that Kroger has done a fabulous job of it. Um, I think that we're starting to see other other companies like Hy-Vee really pushing hard on innovation, trying to be different. Um, let's not forget that the more that a retailer puts behind their private brands, the more loyalty they'll create. Uh, the average shopper now in the course of a month shops in about 3.5 different uh, retail environments for groceries. Um, so that means that even if you're a loyal shopper to one retailer, you're going elsewhere. Well, if I have a fabulous uh, store brand, you can't get that at my competitor. So it's a great way to build loyalty um, as well as to build profits. And we're seeing retailers recognizing that much more probably over the past five to 10 years than we ever did before. And again, because of um, the, the pandemic, we're seeing even more so because these co-packers that make the private labels, um, they've had meetings with the, with the store brands, the banners, and they've also been co-packing for small, innovative brands. So the retailers gone to them and said, hey, look, I know you're under short supply. I know your plant isn't at full capacity. What I want to do 
is I'm going to guarantee you X amount of dollars of sales. You know, what do you have hidden in your back room there? What, what, you know, can you tell me that you're seeing that's more innovative than ever before? And we've never seen retailers do that. Again, back to this collaboration, going to these co-packers and saying, we want more innovation. You know, tell us the wildest things you have. Doesn't mean we're going to buy them, but we're going to learn from that and maybe develop some really cool products that our shoppers are going to love. Yeah, I'm amazed uh, living here in the Denver area, Phil, we have King Supers Mm -hmm. is the local version of Kroger or owned by Kroger. And I like to cook. And uh, I remember, I don't know, a year or two ago going to my local King Super and saying, "Okay, got to pick up some balsamic vinegar. And lo and behold, there is the Kroger private selection version Mm -hmm. of balsamic (laughs) vinegar. So isn't that part of what's happened, too, is, you know, it used to be about staples. Now it's about even taking these store brands into what previously I guess we might have thought of as niches. Absolutely. Um, And it's because they're listening to consumers. Uh, What the Internet has done for us in a good way. Uh, especially Instagram, has really expanded our palettes where with millennials and with Generation Z, they can just look at a picture and they recreate the recipe from that. It's not, you know, in our parents' day where they went to Good Housekeeping magazine and there was a recipe that had 20 steps to it. Uh, People today want to be more creative. They want to be more inventive with their food. And also because of the Internet, we've been exposed to more ethnic cuisines than ever before around the world. And people have been bored with food, especially during the pandemic. So much more willing to try new recipes, new things. And if the retailer wants to survive and stay in business, they've got to be able to satisfy those needs. Yeah. I'm here with Phil Lempert, CEO of Supermarket Guru and host of Lempert Report Live. Um, Phil, you just brought it up, the pandemic. Uh, We can't not talk about it during this podcast. Mm -hmm. Here we are at at the end of October 2021. Uh, It's still an ongoing topic. So maybe a multi-part question for you, Phil, about the pandemic. You know, we know We know it's changed buyer behavior. You touched on some of these disruptions. You mentioned climate, labor, transportation. Um, You know, what's going on out there? I guess question number one with with all these disruptions and problems. And maybe question number two is, do you think uh, you could predict what some of the lasting trends or consequences of this pandemic might be? Sure. Uh, The first part is is the most difficult and that's what the pandemic has created is a unique labor shortage for us Uh, people who have worked in supermarkets um, for the most part um, have not been paid very well and going through the pandemic where they're being yelled at by customers um, either because customers think there's more toilet paper in the back room that you know they're hiding for themselves um, or just being rude or whatever else um, 
We have a severe problem as it relates to labor. We have um, right now supermarkets and restaurants throughout the country who have announced that they've got to close their stores early because they don't have labor. Schnucks in St. Louis has done it. Popeyes, uh, the chicken、mm. chain, just announced it、uh, yesterday that you know they've got to close their dining rooms earlier because they don't have labor. So I think that the number one problem that we've got as a result of the pandemic is labor. Is the labor Shortage and people not wanting to work, whether it's at food service or at retail, because of everything that's around them—not just the pandemic and not just wearing masks, but you know the customer contact has not been you know very pleasant for them. So the number one challenge is how do we get these people back to want to have a career in in grocery stores? And I know a lot of CEOs of retailers have really focused on that, and it's more than just money. It's not just、uh, you know increasing to fifteen dollars or seventeen dollars or whatever an hour. It's really taking a page out of the Wegmans, if you would, of the world, where not only、uh, does the family treat every employee well and know practically every employee. And pay them well, and train them, and give them good benefits. It's that whole package that retailers really have to think about. And I can't tell you the number of times I've had conversations with retailers, and I've said, "Hey, you know, why aren't you training your people?" And so they they stay, and they say, "Well, we can't afford to because they leave." So it's、mm-hmm. the chicken and the egg that you know, if you train them and you treat them well, you're going to have them. I am sure、uh, that Wegmans. And I don't know this for a fact, but that Wegmans really doesn't have a labor shortage problem.、Uh, that that they have all their all their people who love、uh, to work there. As they're opening up new stores in the New York metropolitan area and so on, they have waiting lists of people who want to work、mm. at the chain. So we've got to recreate what that experience is for somebody who works on the front lines in grocery. It's not enough for us to say you're an essential worker.、Uh, we've got to prove that they're an essential worker, that we really feel it. So, as far as what you know, what's going to be the lasting trend? Certainly, sanitation.、Um, what the pandemic has done is it has really upped the sanitation procedures in our supermarkets. Everything from the check stand belts. To you know, cleaning shopping carts, to、uh, cleaning the door handles of dairy, all those things、uh, have been put in place, and they're not going to go away. That's number one. Number two is we are going to see some consolidation of retail. We've started to see it already,、uh, where Raley's, for example. Privately owned has bought Bosch's. Privately owned in Phoenix, Arizona.、Uh, we just saw an announcement the other day that Coburn's has bought another small chain. So I think we are going to see some more retail consolidation, especially with the strong privately owned regionals.、Um, I think that's one of the consequences. We're also going to see better relationships, as I talked about before. Brands and retailers are talking more than ever before, and during the pandemic, during the early stages of the pandemic, when meat cases were empty in the larger chains, you could go to your local IGA and they had meat. And the reason that they had meat on their shelves is they had a relationship with that local purveyor. 
um, that they've had for 20 or 30 years. So I think we're going to see more of a bonding of relationships. And lastly, we are going to see a skew reduction. Uh, Progressive CEO announced, oh, probably, you know, nine months ago that they were going from 88 canned soups down to in the mid 40s, uh, both because of production. And also they looked at the numbers and he found that they had over 30 different combinations of chicken noodle soups. And we just Mm. don't need that. And we're leaving an era of brand managers just doing brand extensions for the idea of brand extensions, not that consumers actually wanted them. So I think that those are the major factors. Uh, We're also going to see smaller stores. As a result of the SKU uh, reduction, we're also going to see a lot more micro-fulfillment centers in the back of stores for pickup or delivery. I'm a huge fan of click and collect, where you go online, you order your groceries, and then you tell them when you want to pick it up. I don't think that the delivery model is sustainable. And every retailer that I've spoken to have said, they lose about $10 per order on every delivery order. So that's just not sustainable as, as a business model. And now where we're moving, especially in New York City, to whether it's GoPuff or Gorilla or any of them that are you know, c- trying to develop this 10, 15-minute delivery for one or two products, uh, that's absurd. Uh, yeah, again, it's not sustainable economically. You can't have someone delivering a pint of ice cream to you at two o'clock in the morning um, and either you make money or the consumer doesn't have to pay a fortune for it. Mm-hmm. So you've mentioned a lot of silver lining, positive things that have come out of the pandemic, whether it's, you know, better relationships between retailers and brand owners or these companies maybe uh being forced to follow uh, great culture companies like Wegmans so they can attract uh, the labor force, which is in a shortage. You mentioned sanitation, all, all positive things. Um, let's, let's talk a bit about some of the challenges. If I'm a, a brand owner, what am I going to do about SKU reduction? Well, if you're a brand owner, what you've got to do is you've really got to take a long, hard look at your product and say, is this product right for the consumer today in 2021 and 2022? And you've got to be more innovative and you've got to get into the minds and souls of your customers and align your brand with your customer values. Uh, We know that there are certain things that people really care about. Uh, Fair trade, humane treatment of animals, uh, cage-free. You know, does your brand... Uh, exist in that world. And if not, you better change it. Um, Otherwise, you're going to be left by the wayside. You've got to prove to the retailer, you know, why they need to have your product. And you've got to understand that um, without mentioning any brands, that we might not need 25 different varieties of macaroni and cheese. Uh, Macaroni and cheese is a part of the American lifestyle, and certainly it has been during the pandemic. But, you know, having five that are microwavable, four that are cups, five that you've got to boil in water. I mean, enough, Mm. enough with the macaroni and cheese. What maybe people want is they want a whole grain macaroni and cheese with a plant based cheese 
um, on it and have a point of difference and really look at it from an innovation standpoint rather than just, you know, adding more, um, you know, more SKUs to an existing platform. Mm -hmm. And I guess at the end of the day, rationalizing and reducing SKUs, it's it's going to help with some of these, you know, supply chain disruptions, labor shortages, transportation issues, right? It's got to help with all those things. Yes, absolutely. And I think both the retailer and definitely the consumer win uh, by doing that. Um, I want to say it was about 10 years ago that McDonald's did a study. Um, and what they did is they compared their traditional menu board at that time, which had 25 or 30 items on it, to using an electronic uh, menu board that would just show what were the leading items during that day part. So you would only, when you walked in, see breakfast items at breakfast, lunch items at lunch, and so on. And what they found is their consumers loved it, their sales went up, because what was happening is people would come into a McDonald's, they would look at that sign, and they were confused. There were just too many choices. Mm -hmm. And I would suggest that even in the supermarket, the average supermarket today, you know, um, if I go in, has probably 100 different bottles and brands of olive oil. And most of them are all the same, whether they have an Italian name or not an Italian name. It comes from Tunisia or Spain um, or Greece, even even if it says, you know, produced in Italy on it. That's not where, you know, the olives are coming from. So what we need is we need more transparency and more authenticity because that's what consumers are looking for now especially with millennials and Generation Z. Uh, that's one of the reasons that Aldi does so well. You walk mm -hmm. into an Aldi and there's a list of, I think it's 110 different ingredients that they will not use in their store brands. And that immediately sends a signal to that consumer that says, hey, this retailer cares about my well-being. It cares about my health. It doesn't want to load up their products with anything artificial, um, and so on. So, you know, retailers have to become more curators, if you would, than just pile it high and sell it cheap. I like, I like that curator thing because in the Aldi example, yeah, it makes me feel good overall knowing that, but also probably saves me a lot of time not, not uh, standing in the aisle mm -hmm. looking at labels. Yeah, so, you know, olive oil is another great example for Aldi. They've got four olive oils. They've got a general purpose olive oil. They've got um, an organic olive oil. They have an extra virgin one. They ha Then they have one that's imported from a tiny little region, I think in Sicily. Um, and that's it. And you know something? They don't get complaints from consumers saying, why don't you have 100 kinds of olive oil? Those four really meet the needs of all those shoppers. Mm, less is more. Yes. Um, so crystal ball time, Phil. Mm -hmm. If you you know if you take out your crystal ball, where where's this whole industry? Retail, CPG, brand owners. Where do you think? What do you think the big meta trends are going to be for the next decade or two? I think we're going to see smaller stores. As I mentioned with micro fulfillment centers, I think we're gonna go online to buy our brand name or private label groceries uh, beforehand. We're gonna make an appointment with the store and say that I'm gonna be there at six o'clock to pick up my groceries. 
Uh, we're going to divide that 40,000 square foot store in half, the back half being a micro fulfillment center, the front half just being fresh foods uh, where I can talk to Betty the baker and Bob the butcher. And, you know, the number one complaint about delivery um, is produce. The number two complaint is meat. We want to pick those products ourselves. Uh, we want to make sure that if we're buying limes, they have thin skin so that they're juicy, uh, that the lettuce is not just about ready to turn brown. Uh, we want to be involved in food. Food is much more for the American population than just, you know, feeding feeding our bodies nutrients. Uh, we have a love affair with food, um, as does Italy, as do, does France, and we want to celebrate food. And because the way the store is set up now, if I've got a shopping list of 20 products, I've got to walk past 40,000 products to to get those 20 products. You know, that's not real exciting. That's not real efficient. So if I can divide that store and just make that front part of the store that I visit in person exciting and fun and empowering and educational with great aromas and smells, I think that's what where we're going to. And that's one of the reasons that, again, to pick on Wegmans, that Wegmans does so well. You go into Wegmans and you go, wow, you know, this is great. And there's a lot of other retailers around the country um, that are doing the same thing. We don't really need to put those brand name, unemotional jars, cans and boxes on our shelves. Mm-hmm. It sounds like some neat emerging trends, but... Um, so what are the speed bumps? What are the, you know, what's, what in your view, Phil, is slowing down all this sort of innovation? Well, as I said before, labor is probably number one. Uh, number two is, is really going to be how we come out of this pandemic um, emotionally. Are we going to go back to work um, in, in offices or are people going to want to split their time up? Uh, we really have to get past this point to to identify what are the biggest hurdles. Uh, one hurdle that we know is the cost and time to reimagine the supply chain uh, from the farm to the time it gets to to the supermarket. You know, the way we farm today um, is going to change because of the climate. We've got to do more indoor farming. Uh, the benefits of indoor farming is we've got controlled environments from a food safety standpoint. The, the produce grows three times faster because the lights are on. Uh, we can use less inputs, less pesticides, less herbicides, uh, less food safety issues. Uh, we can put them in those empty office buildings in New York City and, mm. and deliver, you know, within minutes uh, to different retail stores versus having a truck. You know, the 96 percent of lettuce that's consumed in the country, all from California to all the other parts. Um, so it's going to take some time. But I think the speed bumps are money and, and time. Um, and unfortunately, what we've seen, especially from venture capitalists, um, is they're throwing everything they can, uh, all their money against food. And they're not really thinking through what what does the food supply need? Obviously, plant based is, is a huge trend that's attracting a lot of VC money. We're going to continue to see that it's never going to replace me. Uh, so we've got to remember that. So I'd like to see some of that VC money going into, you know, creating the new robotic uh, factory for beef. 
and and you know really focused on those big issues that the food industry has uh, the meat department is still the most profitable and the biggest sales for a supermarket so for us to imagine that you know that's going to disappear and everything's going to be plant-based that's not going to happen uh, but what what can we do to bring some excitement to those areas that are the staples that we frankly don't live without uh, don't choose to live without and how can those get better mm, mm. so so phil i always ask everybody uh who is a guest on this uh, podcast uh, a two-part question and it's about advice what advice would you give phil to two different sets of folks first innovators already in this cpg and retail space and second new people just starting out their careers so for the first, um, those people who are already in the food and CPG space, get out of your office and get into stores. And, and I'm not just talking about supermarkets. I'm talking about the grocery outlets of the world, the Aldis of the world, the bodegas of the world. Uh, I mean, just everybody who sells food, the food halls, the restaurants, you know, really go up to consumers. And this is something that my dad taught me early on that I do to this day. Um, I see the supermarket as, as my laboratory. Uh, I can walk up to consumers. I can talk to them, um, mostly pre-pandemic. Now, not a lot of people want to talk um, and say, you know, why did you buy that? And, and just be really curious about why people are putting certain products in their shopping carts. We have a tendency in the food world to look at um, whether it's Nielsen or IRI reports or whatever other reports we can get, and we just sit behind our desk and, and we extrapolate what that should be. That's not an excuse for talking to consumers. And I don't mean focus groups because I'm, I'm not a fan of focus groups because when you think about the idea that, you know, I pay somebody $75 uh, for two hours of their time and they eat stale potato chips and they like them. And I'm going to judge what my new product should be based on them. That doesn't work for me. So I think it's getting out of your comfort zone, getting into the environments where people actually buy food. And for the new people that are just starting their career in food, I think, number one, you have to decide why do you want to be in the food world? Um, there's there's a lot of other industries that you can make a lot more money in, um, whether it's, you know, investment banking and so on. And if, in fact, you want to be in the food world, you have to have a passion, whether it's to eliminate waste, whether it's to feed the hungry, whether it's to enhance nutrition, bring new flavors uh, to to the U.S. that we've never seen before. You've got to have that burning passion um, to to be successful in food. And I've seen so many people with lots of degrees um, who have come into the food space and left it because it just didn't meet their needs and they just didn't understand it. And the best education that you can get is, you know, getting into the getting into your career in the food world. Go work in a supermarket for a month. You know, go up to, you know, the the HR department of whatever brand you're working for um, that hires you and say, the first thing I want to do 
you know, I don't want to go to Disneyland. I want to go to a supermarket. Uh, let me let me spend a month in the supermarket and really understand how it operates, how it works, what are the challenges. Uh, a lot of our supermarkets today have registered dietitians in them that really fulfill a great consumer need. And they are typically between 25 and maybe 40 years old, typically female. They have to deal with buyers that have been at the supermarket chain for 30 or 40 or 50 years. They have to go up to the grumpy old produce manager and say, hey, I really think that you should look at monk fruit uh, because this is something that's really new and exciting. And, you know, have that produce manager say, monk fruit, never heard of it. Go away, kid. Uh, we, we need to understand how to language and how to communicate internally with the retailer if we're going to be successful. Yeah, great advice. Great advice for both the newbies and, and folks in the industry for a while. Phil, before we go into wrap-up, any other words of wisdom or, or comments that you want to share with our listeners? Just it's all about the relationship. And, and the closer you are with Gary, with the whole team at, at Trace Gains, with retailers, with brands, uh, with everybody, the more successful you're going to be. And, you know, we're not adversaries. We need to collaborate more than ever before. We need to be asking those questions, whether they be hard questions or not, and really getting to the root of our answer. Be curious, uh, because the more curiosity you have, the better an executive you're going to be. I'd like to thank my guest, Phil Lempert, CEO, supermarket guru, and host of the Lempert Report Live. Phil, it was just great talking to you today. Great advice, great insights. Really appreciate your time. It's my pleasure, Gary, anytime. Thanks for listening to C2C, where we cover innovation in the food and CPG business from conception to consumption. Just type the letters C-T-O-C, no spaces, to find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbeam, and Google Play.